0: Well, if you have your Bible, then please turn to Romans chapter 2. We're continuing through the book of Romans, looking at the last portion of chapter 2 today. If you don't have a Bible, then there are these black Bibles that are on the end of each pew. And you'll benefit from following along. It's on page 940 in those Bibles. And if you don't have a Bible for yourself at all, then please take that one home. It's our gift to you. Uh, We want you to have God's Word in your life. It is powerful. Uh, It is living and active, so take one. Let's read this together, Romans 2, verses 25 through 29. God tells us by Paul's pen, For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his circumcision be regarded as circumcision? One of the most heartbreaking things that I encounter in my interactions with the community as, as a pastor is when I run into people who think that they're a Christian because their family has historical ties to our church. This happens more often than you would think. It could be that their, their parents or their grandparents were members here, and maybe they gained some familiarity with the church and its people because of that. Sometimes I even hear people say, well, I, I knew Reverend Kissenweather or even I knew Reverend Jackson, or even I knew Reverend Detweiler, which is amazing. And yet sometimes they think that they are Christians because of their familiarity with the church. And it's sad how often sometimes people will even say things like, well, I am a Baptist because my parents brought me to that church when I was a baby and did a baby dedication for me or something along those lines, or my family has been there for generations, or even my family's names are on the stained glass windows. Now all of those things point to God's mercies in the past, that we are, as, as it says in Deuteronomy, that we are uh, living in houses that we did not build, that we are drinking from vineyards that we did not plant, that there were generations who came before us. But what's sad is when someone thinks that they are okay with God, that they are a Christian because of those historical ties. It's simply not the case. You can't ride your parents' coattails into heaven. I'll put that another way you can't be grandfathered into the kingdom. God has no grandchildren. Another way to think of this is that getting into heaven is not like getting into college. There is no such thing as a legacy admissions system. Guys, if you are going to be right with God, you must have something that is beyond and surpassing and superior to historical or family ties to the church. You must have something more than just a consideration that I think I am a Christian because I grew up around it, because my parents always said we were a Baptist family or something like that. You must be born again. That's what Jesus says. That's how I could summarize the paragraph that I just read to you, that I'm going to preach to you out of Romans chapter 2, is exactly what Jesus says. Unless one be born again, he will not see the kingdom of God. You could put it another way, as, as, as uh, Paul said in Galatians chapter 6, verse 15, that neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. When I say that, I mean that it could be implied in some ways of thinking, well, if I am among this people, I am okay with God. Or maybe I was born halfway up the stairway to heaven and I only have a little bit further to climb. Well, no. You can't climb it. Your works can't do it by the law. That's what he talked about in the previous paragraph. And your family status can't do it either. And your religiosity, all kinds of things, whatever you would consider, even if you are new to the church and your family has not been here for generation after generation, If you would say to yourself, because I outwardly identify with the church, therefore I must be steps ahead of others. It's not the case. That is what is being confronted here in the scripture. Now all of chapter 2 in Romans is telling those who are among the Jewish people in particular that they also must have faith in Jesus Christ in order to be saved. That there is nobody who was going to go to heaven because they were among the nation of Israel, the children of Abraham. In chapter 1, he talked about how all of the Gentile people are under sin, including those who would want to have the excuse, but I never heard. That still, they are sinners against God and there is salvation in no other name except through Christ alone. But now he's telling the Jewish people that as well. So we've been in this chapter for a few weeks now, and we've been hearing over and over Paul confronting hypocrisy, where those who would would say that they are righteous for some sort of an external reason need to be confronted with the reality of their sin and their need for redemption, the hopelessness that all mankind has, apart from the redemption that is in Jesus that's received by faith. Last week we saw a paragraph where Paul was confronting the first of two objections that the Jewish people who rejected Jesus would say were reasons why they didn't need Jesus. And the first objection was, we Jewish people possess the law of God that God gave to our people through Moses. The law was a reason for rejecting their need for faith. He said, well, we are the people that God gave his rules to. Even the rules having to do with what you do when you sin and the offerings that you bring. And Paul tears that argument apart and says, if you have the law, are you a lawbreaker? And the answer to that is yes. Having the law is an advantage in that you have the word of God in front of you, but if you break the law, it's not going to save you that you had the law. Having the Bible in front of you is a huge advantage have the word of God in front of you but what the word of God leads us to is not to some kind of an idea well because I have this Bible and I like it I must be okay but it calls us to faith in Jesus and it always has all the way from Genesis forward but now there's a second objection that the Jewish people possessed circumcision So the law was the word of God given to the people, and circumcision was this mark in the flesh upon the private parts of the males that they were marked out as part of this people. and sort of a sign from generation to generation ever since Abraham, ever since God had given the the circumcision command for Abraham and his descendants as, as this chosen people through which he would bless all nations, that those who came, they had this mark in their flesh, that from the eighth day after they were born, marked them off as being a part of God's chosen people. That's a good thing, because God commanded it. God was serious about it. He was so serious that he almost killed Moses when Moses had not circumcised his son. God meant it. It was a good thing. But the bad thing comes in when you start to rely on it. When people would say, well, because we are children of Abraham. That's essentially what it's getting at here with circumcision. It's not as though anyone thought that this physical thing would save them. It's the idea that it marks them off as children of Abraham. As a part of the people that God had shown mercy and grace and election toward. And saying, because I identify with this people, I must be okay. There's a great big thick commentary written by Doug Moo on Romans and I love what he says here he says that the implied Jewish objection that Paul is addressing is this how can we be treated the same as Gentiles even to the point of of being in danger of the wrath of God when our circumcision marks us as belonging to God's chosen people heirs of the Abrahamic promises well he had said before that the law wouldn't save them because they are lawbreakers. And what he says about circumcision is that circumcision will not save them because it binds them to the law and they are lawbreakers. It's all coming back around. It is coming back around to the reality that no matter what excuse a man may give or a woman may give, a human being may give, we are sinners. We are sinners and the wages of sin is death. And the only solution... Is to receive the free gift of God, which is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So all of this is showing every single human being is a sinner, tearing apart every objection, but the objection that he's going to tear apart today is but I am marked out as part of God's people. Therefore I must already be okay. Therefore I don't need to be converted. You do need to be converted, you must be converted. You may have been born and and brought the first Sunday after you were born to church. You may have been hearing the name of Jesus your entire life. You may have been received into the membership of the church. And yet it's possible for all kinds of things to have happened in that way. And yet you have not been converted. That's a strange thing for some people to hear because you think that conversion is switching from one religion to another. Well, the way the Bible talks about conversion is that he converts your heart into something new. He causes you to be born again. And that is the only hope that we have, is for God to change our heart such that we repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. So you can't depend upon circumcision. You can't depend upon this idea, well, I just am part of God's people. You must be born again, Jesus said. Well, let's let's play that out. Let's look at these verses that we just read, beginning in verse 25 of Romans 2. We're going to see Paul first talk about circumcision and obedience. Obedience. He says, circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Hmm. Circumcision indeed is of value. And I want to clarify what we're talking about. And I, I want to even skip ahead in Romans a little bit about what he's going to say about circumcision. Because you need to know, I especially am saying this because we have brothers and sisters in Christ who are among um, those faithful, believing Presbyterians and others who practice infant baptism. Who it, it seems so often when they read the word circumcision in the New Testament, they, they read it as baptism or when they see the word baptism, they read it as circumcision. They think that it is, it, they are the same thing, this thing that you do for babies to mark them out as part of the covenant people. And I've got to say, I, I, there, there has to be a great case for that because I've known so many faithful believers who hold to that, but I just don't see it in the Bible. I just don't. And so I, I want to take you just for a second, because of that, I want to take you to Romans 4, verses 9 through 12. You might flip over one page and just, just see this. Another place where Paul's about to address that question. He says, is the blessing only for the circumcised? And then he's talking about the blessing of having your sins forgiven. Is the blessing only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that the righteousness uh, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Now, I'm not going to preach right now the whole sermon that I will eventually preach on that passage, or maybe five sermons, or however many it's going to be. We'll see. But I want you to hear the overall gist of what Paul is getting at here. He is saying... That, yes, God gave circumcision to Abraham, but he gave it to him after he had already declared him righteous by faith. And he, de- he gave Abraham the gift of faith before that circumcision command came. And he did it, it says, so that Abraham would be the father of those who are of faith. Faith. He's the physical father of those who would come from that lineage and be marked off by the physical mark of circumcision. He is their physical father. But he's saying, here is the true way to be a child of Abraham. It is to have the faith of Abraham. Now that's made explicit in other places too, like John chapter 8 and, and Matthew chapter 3 and Galatians chapter 2 and 3 and uh, and 4 and the whole book of Galatians and And uh, you could just go on and on about this. But here's the thing. It is not by physical lineage that you go to heaven. God marked out a people for himself as a physical people through which he would physically send the Savior. And that is amazing. But you can't go to heaven by being part of his people merely on the outside. You become one of God's people who will go to heaven rather than hell as we all deserve. You will do that not by things that happen on the outside including your birth, your status. You will go to heaven by having the faith of Abraham. That's why we who, uh, most of us in this room are Gentiles by birth, not quite all, but most of us and yet we can all sing that old children's song Father Abraham had many sons, and I am one of them, and so are you, for all who have faith in Jesus. That's the faith of Abraham, all right? So, when the Bible talks about circumcision, it's not talking about baby baptism. It would have been so, so easy. If, if, if the case had been that, that circumcision and baptism were really just sort of the same thing, All of these arguments that are in the New Testament about circumcision, if you've read through the New Testament, you've seen this. It comes up all the time. It could have been settled in one sentence just to say, you don't have to be circumcised anymore because now baptism is circumcision. They could have just said that. That would have been really simple. But it never says that. It says, no, it no longer counts for anything. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision. Here is what counts. A new creation being born again, receiving the circumcision of the heart, as the Old and New Testament both put it. All right, so just having said that, verse 25 in Romans 2, it says this, circumcision is of value. Why would we say it's of value? He's about to say, it doesn't matter if you're circumcised or not, it doesn't matter if you count yourself as part of the Jewish people or not, or whatever external signs you have, how is it of any value then? Well, he's about to say in chapter 3, He says, what is the value of circumcision? He says, much in every way, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. He says, here is a significant thing. Those people who were externally marked out as God's people, they received the word of God. That is amazing. And that is an advantage. He says, in every way, much in every way. And you might say today, well, we are among a people who have received the Word of God. And you are. Even if you came here and you've never touched a Bible in your life, we're going to give you one for free today. You've received the Word of God, and that is a massive advantage, to have the oracles of God, to be among a people who love the Bible, who preach the Word, who take in the Word, who teach our children the Word. This is a good thing, and yet... You're not going to be saved by reading the words and trying to do better. You must be born again. How many times can I say that in one sermon? That's the whole point of this. You must be born again. You must. Well, what is the advantage? He says it is indeed of value if you obey the law. Wow. In Galatians 5.3, he says, I testify every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to to keep the whole law. Wow. I'm trying to think how could we bring this into today because most of us are not Jewish, most of us are not looking at that in a literal sense, that circumcision. Well, We could say, well, everyone who testifies that they are a church member is under obligation to keep the whole law. To keep every command of the Ten Commandments? To keep every command of the New Testament? To uphold the church covenant that we've all agreed to? Yeah. But you know what? That's a burden that's still too great for us to bear. You can't just do that. You can't just say to yourself, well, I have taken on this identification, this, this statement of who I am. Therefore, I'm okay. No, there is a law. And he says, you are obligated to keep, if you obey the law, it's of value. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Now, who is it that breaks the law? Should we take a show of hands? Who in here is a lawbreaker? Well, we, oh, Denise. Oh, I saw your hand go up first. You must be such a terrible lawbreaker. (laughs) You know what the Bible says? All have sinned. All have sinned. It's it's not just this person or that person or this person. It is that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so when he says, if you break the law, you break the law. You break the law. And he says, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Not in any physical way. He's getting here that there is something that is more important than the physical or the outward identification. He's saying you may be outwardly identified in all the right ways, but God sees the heart. He says in Deuteronomy and Jeremiah and all over the place, circumcise your hearts. Something more than just an external identification, but an internal change by the Holy Spirit. But if that's not there, God knows. You may have everything going on the outside, but God sees what's going on in the heart. If you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Verse 26, so if a man who is uncircumcised, a Gentile, keeps the precepts of the law, will not his circumcision be regarded as circumcision? Or his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? He's saying here, God can save Jews or Gentiles. God can save those who identify one way or the other as far as family lineage and all these kinds of external things. God can do a work on the heart. God can do a work on the heart so that somebody, even who is a lawbreaker, and a, someone who is separated from all of these rules of the Bible, God can make them born again such that they are forgiven Such that in God's sight, our sins would be washed away. That we would have the righteousness of Christ counted to us by faith. As he calls it in Romans 5.17, the free gift of righteousness. To possess that in God's sight and to have our hearts changed. To obey God from the heart. To love God. That's something that's not limited to just this group or that group. Or this or that. It is for whoever God would choose and call and bring in by his grace and spirit. A great example of this in in Matthew chapter 3. When John the Baptist had come. John the Baptist was, I mean on the outside you see this man and you say that guy is crazy. Just wearing the weirdest clothes. He, He ate bugs. And, and he was out there at the water of the Jordan River doing this thing that seems kind of normal to us now, but back then was just weird, out of nowhere, taking people and dunking them in, in the water and, and saying, you must repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He, he was baptizing as a sign to, to Israel, even you... Among the circumcised, you must have your sins washed away. That's how I would summarize John the Baptist's message. You must believe. You must be washed clean. Now, when there were certain ones who came to him, it says, among the Pharisees and Sadducees, this is in Matthew 3-7, coming for baptism. These would have been the people who were teachers of Israel. They not only had a Bible, but they memorized it. And they memorized the commentaries of the rabbis on the Bible. And they were the rabbis whose, whose teachings would ultimately get written down in things like the Mishnah and the Talmud. And, and they were the ones who, who appeared outwardly as so righteous to so many people that Jesus could even say, do as they say. They appeared so much that way, and yet God knew their hearts. And God let John the Baptist see a little bit of their hearts as one of his prophets. And so when he saw these people coming who appeared so righteous, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. He says, you think that you are righteous? He says, you are a brood of vipers, or another way to put that is, you are the offspring of the serpent in the Garden of Eden. You think that you are among the righteous, you are a child of Satan. That is what he said to them. And he preemptively got at this circumcision argument and he said, do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham you know what we could say to that we could say do not presume to say to yourselves i grew up in church and my parents were faithful christians and i try to do a good job and i'm a very moral person do not presume that he says god would be able to take not even human beings but stones on the side of the road and raise them up as children for abraham Does he do that? I don't think so. But he could. We we, we should not presume upon the riches of the grace of God if your law-keeping heart would expose you, then you're shown not to be a part of God's people. But if God would come and show you that grace of repentance and faith, well then, what does it say? If a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, his uncircumcision will be regarded as circumcision. Taken into God's family, made a part of God's people by a change of the heart. By a change of the heart. Uh, One way to think about this. I I have, right now, I have an expired passport. I need to go and get that updated. But that passport, it marks me off as a citizen of the United States. Now, I know that not all of our members are citizens of the United States. That's okay. But I think we would all agree that there are some advantages to having citizenship in the United States, especially if you're living in the United States. There's a lot of advantages to it, and and I won't get into all of those right now. But what is the advantage of being a U.S. citizen if you are convicted of treason and put on death row? kind of nullifies it right there, doesn't it? You could say, but you could be sitting in your, your jail cell and waving around your passport and saying, but I am a U.S. citizen. I have rights. It's amazing that America still gives rights even to prisoners on death row in lots of ways, but you know what? Your, your rights, you've thrown them out the window by your breaking. And this is what's happening here is that there would be those who would come before God and say, look, I know I'm not perfect. I know this, I know that. And lots of people in the church aren't perfect either. But you know what? I am part of this people. I'm grandfathered in. My family's names are on the church windows. Well, you know what? if you are a lawbreaker against God, it is of no advantage. And whether you would go to heaven or hell, you will be lost in your sins apart from faith in Jesus, apart from his cleansing blood, apart from the new birth that the Holy Spirit would give. So being a part of God's people, it doesn't Uh, I mean externally a part of God's people identifying outwardly with, with God's people it doesn't exempt anyone from obedience to God secondly we look at verse 27 we're going to see that there is judgment combined with circumcision he says he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law Now, we've talked about this already. There's the written code, that's the law and the Bible. Just having it doesn't do much. That circumcision, that just having an outward identification with God's people, it doesn't really do much as far as eternity is concerned. But he says that there's an element of judgment that will come. From those who were considered outsiders, Gentiles, who have faith, on the day of judgment, they will stand in judgment, upon those who presumed on the riches of God's kindness and mercy, not knowing that God's kindness was meant to lead you to repentance, as he says earlier in this chapter. What does that mean? Well, it means that on the day of judgment, when everything is exposed and laid bare, when there is a public judgment of the living and the dead, that there will be all kinds of reversals. There will be those who are the last, who are the first in the kingdom. There are those who were the first in things of this world, who will be the last on the day of judgment. People that everyone, as I told you a few weeks ago, people that everyone assumed would go to heaven, who will not. People that everyone assumed would go to hell, who will not, by the mercy and the grace of Christ. And it's going to be shown on that day that it is by faith and is by an inward change of the heart. This happened back in the Old Testament in Noah's day. It says in Hebrews 11, By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. What does that mean, he condemned the world? I mean, he was out there building this ark. People could have gotten on board with him. I mean, there was an offer of salvation to the world in building that ark, even as people were mocking him for it. How did he condemn the world? Well, he condemned the world by being a living example that there was a man of faith in the world. When everyone else in the world looked around at each other and said, well, we're all, nobody's perfect, everybody does this, everybody's got that in their life. I'm no different. I will, I'll be okay. He was a righteous man by faith. If you would look around at the world and say, well, I'm not perfect, but neither is anybody else. If you would look at the church and say, some of them seem holy on the outside, but I know they're all hypocrites. I know they don't really mean it. I know they're just putting on a mask. A different kind of mask than we're talking about in the 2020 and 2021, right? Well, on the day of judgment, God is going to show. No, there are people, millions of people, maybe even billions, who I actually gave them a heart of real faith. I actually washed them clean from the inside out by the blood of Jesus. I actually did not just in external things, on the inside. I really did take away their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. And the fact that that is real will stand as an element of judgment against the whole world who thought that that couldn't possibly be real in anybody, who thought that it was just the external things, just putting on face. This happened, Jesus talked about it other times too with Gentiles who had faith, who would stand in judgment against those he was preaching to who refused to believe in him. He said, the men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment at this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. He said, the queen of the south, the queen of Sheba, will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Guys, All of this is showing that God, just like he said back in Romans 2.11, verse 11 of this chapter, God shows no partiality. God is not going to grade on a curve in the day of judgment. If you think to yourself, well, because I am not perfect and nobody is, then God will just give us this many bonus points. Or God will put us this far ahead on the curve because we were born into this family. God will not do that. He is a God who shows impartial judgment. And then finally, in verses 28 and 29, we have the circumcision of the heart. Which I've been talking about all along. This is what this whole thing is about. But let's see what he says here. Verse 28, he says, No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. That is a revolutionary statement right there. That is a statement where Paul who was a Hebrew of Hebrews of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day, trained up at the feet of Gamaliel, where he would say, all of my family, all of my tribe, all of my nation, they are not, in the day of judgment, the people of God, unless there is an inward heart change. He has such a heart for those who are physically part of the nation. Such a heart for them. He says, my desire, my earnest desire to God is that they may be saved. He says that earnestly in chapter 10. But he's saying right here, there is a big difference between family lineage and the family of God. You must be born again. He goes on in verse 29, But a Jew is one inwardly. It is not outward. It's not by circumcision. It's not by the outward things that can be done. It's not by all kinds of things, but instead it is inward. It's by the heart. It's by the spirit, not by the letter. Let's, let's think about that a little bit. He said, It's not by outward things. John Gill, who is one of the greatest pastors of all time, in, in my opinion, Uh, an old Reformed London Baptist from the 1700s, but he he wrote about this passage that this this is not merely being right with God, being counted as a Jew inwardly, he says here. It can't come by outward things like name, nature, nation, religion, or profession. You cannot be counted in God's book as one of his children by name, You can't say, because I was part of this family, I must be in. You can't be counted as part of God's children by nature. You can't say to yourself, well, he's talking about inward things of the heart, and I judge myself to be a pretty good person who's sincere. No, that's not what he's talking about. You can't be saved by that. You can't be saved by nation. Obviously, he's making that clear about being part of The Jewish nation, you you can't be saved simply by being part of that. But you could also say, well, I'm a German, so I come from a long line of Lutherans. You hear that sometimes. You can't be saved by that. Or you could say, I'm an American, and I love this country, and this country was founded on Christian principles. All that's true, I agree with all that, but you can't be saved by that. You can't be saved by mere religion. You can't be saved by the outward practice of religion. You can't say on the day of judgment, let me into heaven because I was a member of First Baptist Church of Madeline. Now, we take membership seriously, but people can and have fooled us. You You can appear on the outward in such a way that it seems that you are a believer in Christ who is going to faithfully follow God, and then it turns out not to be the case. You can be a member of this church and yet be trusting in your church membership and perish on the day of judgment. You cannot be a person of God, one of God's children, by a mere profession. Just by saying, well, there was a day when I prayed a prayer and I I prayed to receive Jesus into my heart. You can't trust in that. You can't trust in the fact that you profess faith in Jesus. You have to trust in Jesus, not in your profession of Jesus. Does that make sense, the difference between those two things? He, he says that it's not outward and physical. There is nothing that you can do in the flesh that will save you. He says in verse 29 that it is not by the letter. Now, you know what he's talking about when he says the letter. He is talking about this beautiful, sacred, holy book that we call the Bible. We love the Bible. He says it's not by the letter, but by the Spirit. And and you need to know here that he says explicitly in 2 Timothy that this whole book, every bit of the Scripture, is breathed out by the Spirit. So Paul is not speaking against the Bible here when he says that you can't be saved by the letter. What he's saying here is you can't be saved by picking up this Bible and by thinking, I'm just going to do what it says. You know what that is? That's trying to be saved by the works of your flesh, even with a Bible in your hand. You know what the Bible points us to is that you can't be saved by works, it's by faith alone in Christ alone. Of course, that's what it said all the way from Genesis forward. That's what everybody should have known. But he says, here's how it's going to happen. Not by the letter, but by the Spirit. By the Spirit. All right? It it is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. It has to be something that is done as a miraculous work of God. Now, everybody who's asleep, wake up. All right? Bottom line of all of this. There is nothing you can do to be saved. I could walk out of here right now and that would be true. You would have just heard the truth. Good news. Second thing. There is something God can do to save you. And it is by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the mysterious miraculous working of the spirit to cause you to be born again he says here a Jew is is one inwardly circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit he says his praise is not from man but from God meaning that God sees the inward heart not just the outward appearance you could do all kinds of things on your own to appear holy, to do good stuff, you can't save yourself by anything you can do. But God can do a miraculous work in your heart to make you, as he calls it, a new creation. A new creation. This has been preached all the way from the beginning of the Bible. Deuteronomy 10.16 says, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Stubborn. Dave read that for us this morning. Jeremiah 4.4, 4, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts. Or here's how it's put in Ezekiel 36. God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is a work of God, not a work of man. It's according to God's grace, God's mercy, that he saves people. It's all saying what Jesus said in John 3 that we prayed from a few minutes ago. You must be born again. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Here's how Jesus described, as it says, it's not by the letter, but by the Spirit. Here's how Jesus described that work of the Spirit. He says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. All right. What you must do in order to be saved is to receive the grace of God that he would do. You can't change your heart. God can. I want to tell you, though, There is a means that God uses to do this. God uses the means of the gospel. God does not just come to somebody's heart who has never heard the good news of Jesus Christ and change their hearts and make them born again. What he already said as the theme verse of this whole book back in Romans 1.16 is this. The gospel... Is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who would believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek? The gospel. How is it that God makes someone born again? Well, he does it through the preaching of the gospel. That doesn't mean that every time you preach the gospel, somebody's going to be saved. If you've ever shared the gospel, you know that. You get people who will scream at you occasionally. Not often. Don't be scared to go share the gospel. All right, But you don't, you don't get people saved every time you, you, you say it. And, and even among those who will be saved, who are among what we call, as Romans 9 will call, God's elect that he will save, they don't believe the gospel usually the first time that they hear it. It's usually something more like the 100th time that they hear it. And why is that? Well, it's because God uses means, but ultimately God is the one who saves. We preach the gospel and we hand it over to God, and the Holy Spirit is the one who in his timing, in his grace, in his will, not man's will, but in his will, that he can come and take the gospel and apply it to the human heart like a wind of a hurricane that would come and tear down the old structure the old stone heart and replace it with a heart of flesh. You don't see where the wind blows, but you see its effects. You don't see how the Holy Spirit comes and changes a heart, but you see its effects. You see that that person turns to the Lord Jesus in repentance and believes upon Him for eternal life. So here is the one thing that I would tell you to do to be saved. Even though I've said there's nothing you can do, I'm going to tell you to do this, because if you do this, it can only happen by the power of the Holy Spirit giving you a new heart. What you must do is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. If you believe in the Lord Jesus, the reason that we're told here is because the Holy Spirit has done a work to come And to mark off, not your flesh, but your heart, to be a new creation, one of the people of God. If that is the case for you, praise God for that. The reason you need to know this is to increase your worship, to increase your awareness that it was God who saved you and not yourself. As it's put over and over in Ephesians 1 as it describes this doctrine of what God has done by His grace, not by our works, by His initiative. It says over and over that the purpose is for the praise of His glory. That's the purpose. That's why you need to know that the Holy Spirit saves people. The the will of God rather than the will of man. You need to know that for the praise of His glory. And... You also need to know to pray for God to do this for people. To pray that God would save people. As you go and you share the gospel, both as it says in Romans 1.16, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, we pray that God would take the message of Christ, the message of salvation by faith in Jesus, and apply it to human hearts and cause them to be born again. By the way, do preach the gospel to those who are among the Jewish people. There are, there are faulty Christian teachings out there, and I wish they weren't out there, but they are out there, that say that you don't need to share the gospel with someone who is ethnically Jewish because they are already part of the people of God, and God will save them by the gospel of the kingdom rather than by the gospel of grace. That is false. Paul is absolutely destroying that whole viewpoint right here. Everyone. Everyone. Jew and Greek must come to faith in Jesus Christ in order to be saved. He is the Savior of the Jews first and also of the Greek. But as you're going and sharing the gospel, pray that God would apply it by the Spirit. As we, we call this in, in theological terms, effectual calling. Pray that God would tear down the resistance of the heart and give grace in a way that they would no longer resist and call them in an effectual way and give them a heart of flesh. And we'll praise God when we see that. If God would do that for you today, let's hear about it. (laughs) I can't make you saved. You can't make you saved. But if you hear that Jesus died for sinners like you to pay the penalty for your sin, that he defeated death, that he rose from the dead, that he is the Lord, if you would look to him and believe, that's the work of the Spirit to, to turn you to belief. And let's talk about that and let's praise God for that. Let's pray right now. God, I thank you that you have given the, the letter of the law. We thank you that you gave circumcision and marked out a people for yourself that you would send the Savior through, Jesus Christ. God, we thank you for the advantages of circumcision that, that Paul talks about, of being those who receive the oracles of God and the adoption and the promises and so much. But, God, we also know that anything that is external, is not what saves, that you look upon the heart and not upon the outside things like, like man would do. And so I, I thank you that you have sent the Holy Spirit who causes those that you would save to be born again and to turn to Jesus in repentant faith. And I pray that you do that even right now. God, even through a weak sermon that is so easy to turn attention away from, We pray that you would show the power of the Spirit upon the hearts of those who need to be saved. I pray that the Holy Spirit would do the work that Jesus said that he would do in bringing about conviction of sin and righteousness and judgment. And I pray that he would also do the work of turning hearts to receive the grace that Jesus purchased by his death on the cross. I pray that you'd cause people to be born again even right now. God, let us know and let us rejoice in that. But I pray that as we see that all of these things are not on the outside, not by the will of man, not by anything that could be done in in our own works of obedience to the letter. I pray that we would see the work of the Spirit and glorify you alone in all of this. That this would be to the praise of your glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.